If Paul is the human author of Hebrews, and I've always been of the persuasion that he is, then he was used of God to write more of the New Testament than any one person. When you mention Paul's name, it conjures up images of a scholarly giant of the faith, a mind that was a repository of such vast scriptural knowledge that at that time he likely had no rival. We see a prolific writer and arguably the most skilled debater of his day an advocate for the gospel that God would use to send that young church into the next century and beyond. And isn't it a wonderful thing that when we consider Paul, our first thoughts are not of who he was, but who he became. Paul was spot on when he told the Corinthians, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are glad not to dwell on Paul's past because we're glad not to dwell on our own. And it is important not to live in the past from which God saved us, but we must never forget the work that God did when he did save us. Paul's accomplishments for God are all the more amazing when we consider who he was before he met Jesus on that Damascus road. Saul, as he was first known, was a Pharisee of Pharisees a student of Gamaliel, but Saul preferred the militancy of Rabbi Shammai to the moderation of Gamaliel's influence, Rabbi Hillel. He refused to be known as the Hellenist Jew that he was. He preferred to call himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. One can't help but wonder if while he was in Jerusalem studying under Gamaliel, if he heard the teachings of a new rabbi from Nazareth. A rabbi whose teachings challenged Jewish tradition and is mind the law itself. Whether or not he saw Jesus in person, we do know that he rejected this crucified teacher as his Messiah. He dismissed reports of his resurrection, and he hated his doctrine. And he saw his followers, those people that were called those of the way, as heretics and a very present threat to the one true religion of Judaism. And Saul viewed his obligation to protect his faith as a license to harass in prison, and even murder. If you look at Saul's tendency to threaten persecution and even death to those who would not mirror his faith, you must concede that Paul was by definition a terrorist. 
He didn't care if his targets were men or women. The cries of children being deprived of their parents didn't move him. His full focus was on accomplishing what he thought was a holy goal, and that was the eradication of Christianity. He acquired new credentials from the high priest, authorizing him and his guards to go to Damascus and continue this brutal activity. But little did he know that on his way to arrest God's people, God would arrest him. Before being blinded by the bright light, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 10, he saw the resurrected Christ. And from there, we see a breathtaking example of the power of Jesus to transform. I have people in my mind and heart that are in desperate need of such a transformation. And if I could give you a glimpse of the so what early in the message, it would be this. I don't care who you're thinking of. If God can change Paul, he can change anybody. The power of Jesus to transform There's some folks that thought President Trump would transform. He did not. President Biden is not being successful at it either. And here's a spoiler alert. Whoever the next president is won't be able to do it either. Oh, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote for the right people that most closely mirror our convictions. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if you're looking to the Oval Office to change lives you'll be disappointed. Oh, if we can maintain the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, and I'm thankful. Let me just go on record. I'm thankful that Roe v. Wade was struck down. It needed to be. It should have never been ruled to begin with. I'm thankful for that. But those nine justices can't change lives. Perhaps more clearly than anyone, Congress has proven it neither has the ability nor apparently the will to change lives. The Bible tells us not to put confidence in men because fundamentally the only personality who has the ability, the authority, And the desire to change lives now and for eternity is Jesus Christ. My hope is in the Lord. And so we want to look to this for a few minutes this morning. The power of Jesus to transform. Father, (coughs) would you help me today to rightly divide your word of truth? Lord, if you would use this message to spark revival, I'd be very grateful. Whatever you do, Lord, may it be clear that you're working in our hearts. Help us 
Change us, we pray. May Jesus be lifted up this morning, for it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. The power of Jesus to transform. First of all, this transformation begins with clarity. It begins with clarity. What do I mean by that? Look at verse number four. And he fell to the earth, Saul, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Clarity. First of all, there was a clear intent. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he means to have Paul's attention. Paul, this isn't a still small voice moment, bud. I want your full attention, so much so, I'm going to knock you off your horse. There are some folks out there that it may be that the first thing that has to happen before Jesus has their full attention is he has to knock them off their proverbial horse. And if that happens, praise the Lord. Better for somebody to be bumped and bruised and God have their full attention than for them to rest at ease, completely ambivalent to him. Jesus said, I have a clear intent I'm not going to be gentle. I'm going to do what I need to do to get your attention. And how many of us could testify that when God wanted to get our attention, he was clear in his intent. He made sure we knew that he meant to have our complete and undivided attention. There's not just clear intent. There's clear identification. Jesus makes it clear to Saul who's talking to him. And he makes it clear to Saul that Jesus knows who he is. This is not something that is that is just, you know, arbitrary and Jesus is speaking to a group of people. No, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, calls him by name and says, Saul, I know you. And I want to make sure you know who's talking to you. I am Jesus whom you persecute. I'm the rabbi you said couldn't possibly be the Messiah because I was hung on a tree. Oh, Saul, if you'd have just studied your Old Testament scriptures better, you'd have realized that's exactly what had to happen. I want to make sure, Saul, you understand. I'm not just speaking to a group of people. I'm talking to you, Saul. And I want to make sure you understand who's talking to you. He's clear in his identification. Somebody that needs to be transformed, you just rest assured, God will make sure they know that he knows them and he'll make sure that they know who's talking to them. They may not want to admit it, but they'll know. And then there's a clear indictment. It begins with clarity, a clear intent a clear identification, and a clear indictment. Jesus makes it abundantly clear what Saul has done. He doesn't say, I am Jesus, and Saul, I know you're struggling. I am Jesus, and I know you're confused, Saul. I am Je-. No, he says, Saul, I am Jesus who you are are persecuting. 
He didn't want to leave any room for Saul not to understand what he's done wrong here. Saul, you have lined up against me. Can I tell you something? Anybody that's lost, that's exactly where they stand before God. They are lined up against him. And nobody gets saved till they understand that. You see, a transformed life begins with clarity. But then it moves into something we just don't hear a lot about these days. It moves into conviction. We are scared to death to preach on sin anymore. I'm not saying that we should go out of our way to offend people and to find ways to tick people off and all that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But when we get to where we're not willing to preach against sin, we got a serious problem. I was listening to a preacher the other day. His name is Vody Bauchum. Now, there's some things I would disagree with Brother Bauchum on. But I'll tell you what he said here was right on the money. And I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. But he basically was saying, some of you are great preachers against sin if you'd quit apologizing about it before you get into it. And he gave this illustration. Now, now let me be very clear. I've got, I've got dear friends that are homosexual. But, but you know that's wrong, right? When did we stop thundering against what the Bible says is wrong? Would we do that with any other sin? Now, now, now Brother Davies, don't, don't get me wrong. I've got dear friends who are murderers. But you know murder's wrong, right? Yeah. Dear Hensleys, don't get me wrong. I've got dear friends who are liars and thieves. But you, you know that's wrong, don't you? And we go out of our way to make sure everybody feels nice and smooth going into the sin so nobody gets offended. But you know what? Sometimes people just got to get offended because that opens the door for conviction. If it's serious to God, it ought to be serious to us. Now, once again, I'm not saying we go out of our way to point people out and, and, and embarrass them and all that. But at the end of the day, if God says it's wrong, we have a responsibility to agree with God. But then once you start doing that, once you start preaching what the Holy Ghost says, then conviction kicks in. Look at verse 5. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now watch this. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It's an interesting idiom. It refers to cattle or oxen. That are plowing, and the plower, the farmer, has an ox goad. Sometimes it can be as simple as a stick, sharpened to a point, or maybe it has a metal point on the end of it. But what it does is to get those oxen moving, he'll poke them with it, and they don't like that. And so to get away from it, what do they do? They step to get away from it, and the plow moves forward. It would be a very primitive association with a cattle prod. Poke, 
poke, poke. All he's trying to do is get them where they want to go, where he wants them to go. Now, what do they do? Sometimes they get so tired of it, they kick against it. And every time they do, who do you think wins, them or the ox goad? It starts poking into their legs and drawing blood and creating. So, and, and by the end of it, they're all battered and beaten and wounded. But did they end up where the farmer wanted them to be? I wonder how many of us kicked against the conviction of God's word. And we look down and we're wounded. But God got us to where he wanted us, didn't he? So thank God for those wounds. But wouldn't we be more wise to not kick? Because we're going to end up where he wants us anyway. We might as well just do what we're supposed to do. But there's some folks, they need a touch from God. And so God touches them with an ox goad. The conviction of God's spirit can appear unseemly. The person grows increasingly frustrated. There's pain, sorrow, and unrest, and circumstances seem to be heading in the wrong direction. But when you see this in the life of a sinner especially, rejoice and pray for more. It was a time that I was away from the Lord. And I'm confident that when my mother prayed for me, she did not pray for God to gently return me to my place of service. I'm sure she prayed something along the lines of, Lord, you do whatever you got to do to get him where he needs to be. Can I tell you, I've got some scars. I kicked against a few of the pricks. But I'm happy to tell you, I'm joyful to tell you by God's grace, today, I believe I am exactly where God intended for me to be. So, if you've got somebody you're praying for and stuff starts going south for them, don't get in the way and try to help them. Don't pray and ask God to do whatever he needs to do and then negate that by getting in the way. Let God work his work. It's going to be hard. It's just like your kids. Sometimes your kids have to fail to get better. Sometimes your kids have to, you know, get beat up on the court to learn how to make that move. So sometimes it's hard. And we parents, we want to run in and we want to protect and we want to do something about it. But we can't because you don't learn that way. So if you've got somebody that needs to be touched by God, then don't get in the way when God touches them. Because that's conviction. The power of Jesus to transform begins with clarity. And this conviction is God moving a person towards a place of repentance. Look at this, listen to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. You remember, 1 Corinthians was written and Paul pretty much laid them out. Um, have you ever seen the standard outline of most of Paul's epistles? Grace and peace, I love you, so does the Lord. What's the matter with you people? Timothy says hi. That's, that's kind of the outline of most epistles. 
Well, 1 Corinthians was one great big, what's the matter with you people? And they had some, they had a mess. They had a mess. So Paul, under Holy Ghost inspiration, lit them up. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 7. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Basically what Paul is saying here is, is, I'm sorry you felt bad, but I'm not sorry you felt bad. I'm glad for what God did in your life. Do you know when I think this started for Saul? Now, this is complete guess. It's a sanctified guess, but it's a guess. You know when I think this started for Saul? As he stood there holding the coats of the people that were stoning Stephen. And he heard Stephen say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And he looks up into heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and says, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. I think it started eating at Saul. Something's going on here. By the way, don't be, don't be surprised if this conviction, at least for a little while, makes somebody lash out. There have been times that God has spoken in my heart about something I needed to fix, and rather than repent and rather than submit, I stood my ground like I'm going to defeat God. Our nature, our human nature, our first our first response is to bow up. God can take care of that and does. You see, we, we see clarity and we see conviction, but then this transformation, once conviction has done its work, you know what you see next? You see confirmation. Verse 5. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Paul isn't just paying lip service here. Paul's repentance results in obedience. And it's difficult to imagine a conversion as real if it never results in obedience. Would you agree with me that it's God's expectation that his people bear fruit? That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? John 15, 8, here is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And at the very least, if none of these things are evident in your life, if you're truly saved, at the very least, there should be the fruit of chastening. Right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? So if God has transformed a life, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to do everything right. But there's going to be something there that confirms a changed life. 
Transformation is not acquired by a changed life, but it is confirmed by it. And then once that person is transformed, once the clarity has set in, and once the conviction has set in, and once the confirmation has been seen, you know what it leads to? It leads to a calling. Verse 15. Paul is speaking to Ananias. Now remember, we went at length to tell you what kind of man Saul used to be. What does it say in verse 15? But the Lord said unto Ananias, Go thy way, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Go to him, Ananias. I have a calling on his life. I have a plan for him. Can I tell you, God's never saved anybody just to sit on the, on the shelf. None of us. Everyone is saved for a purpose. Would you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 with me? 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter one verse eight. Second Timothy one verse eight. Paul says, "Be not therefore, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God." Watch this: who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. What's Paul saying? When you got saved, God had a calling on your life, and it's got nothing to do with what you think you can or can't do. God desires all. God decides all that. God has placed a calling on your life. Every one of you in here that's saved, God has a purpose for you. And can I tell you something? That one you're praying for to be saved, God already has a purpose for them too. Now, they've got a sign on the dotted line. They've been drafted, but they're not on the team yet. But God has a purpose. God has a purpose. So what? All right. That's the, the way that Jesus transforms lives. What do I take from this? What, what am I supposed to use this for? You're in 2 Timothy. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see how all this ends up. <coughs> Remember, Paul was a terrorist. Where do we see Paul ending up? 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This 
is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's a far cry from where Paul started. Who did that? Jesus. May I remind you that you and I worship, serve, follow our joint heirs with the very same Jesus as Paul. There's no secondary modern God that we worship different. No, same God. Aren't you thankful for what God has done in changing your life? Again, I'm not asking you to dwell in the past, but it doesn't hurt us every once in a while to think on what God's done. And forgive the poor grammar, but where he's brought us from. It doesn't hurt us to take some time to remember our sinful roots and how Jesus came in and changed it all. Thank God that he's a transforming God. But then I wonder this. I suspect if I were to ask for a show of hands, every one of us could say, yes, there's somebody in my life, somebody I know, somebody I work with, that I'm praying to be saved. And let's be honest. If you've been praying for somebody in any time at all, it can seem hopeless. Can it? I suspect there were nights that my mother knelt at her bedside and thought he'll never come back. Now, in all candor, God gives us a free will, and I had to decide to. God, the Holy Spirit specifically is a gentleman. He's not going to make you do anything. But I'll tell you what he can do. He can change the circumstances and make you want to do it. Most of us in here, most of us gentlemen are wearing coats of some kind. I can't make you take your coat off, but I can crank crank the heat up and make you want to. So you know what I pray? Crank the heat up, Lord. He's not going to make anybody get saved. He's not going to make anybody repent and come back to their faith. But I'll tell you, he can make it mighty hard to stay where you are. I think of that prodigal. Nobody in their right mind would want their kid to end up in a pig pen like that, but I'll bet that father was glad he did because that's what changed everything. 
He came to an end of himself. So I'm praying for this loved one. I'm praying for this, 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 uh, this, this family member. I'm praying for this friend. I'm praying for this classmate. I'm praying for, I'm praying for this neighbor. I'm, I'm praying for this coworker. And it just seems like it's hopeless. What do I do? What do I pray? Pray for clarity. That God makes things clear in their lives. Pray for conviction. Even if it results in wounding. Pray for confirmation. And pray that they see their calling. Because it comes back to what I said in the first. It does not matter who they are. What they're doing. Where they've been. You remember that list Paul gave in 2 Corinthians? Horrible things. Immoral things. Wicked things. But what did he say? And such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. Whatever your situation, whether it's for yourself, someone you love, someone you know, never forget the example of Paul. And it's proof of the power of Jesus to transform.